Hello, welcome back to the Fusion Plasma podcast. Yeah, sorry about the hiatus. Uh, many thanks to Julia, a friend of mine in Germany, for really pushing me to get this back on track. And I hope that she is able to help out in the next coming episodes. So last time we talked about introducing a series on plasma medicine and hoping to get the new update and current uses for it today. Um, but before we jump into that and before you run off to your local dentist or dermatologist asking for a treatment with plasma, we should first answer some questions about, you know, the basics of the plasma in plasma medicine. So we want to figure out what type of plasma is being used and how can it affect what is being targeted? So what is being targeted um, and how deep does the plasma penetrate in the target? So for example, the skin, how deep does it go into your skin? And what type of devices are existing today? And yeah, what's the typical dose of a plasma? Um, so these are all, I mean, questions that I was really interested in as we started out, and I thought this is a good foundation to build on. Um, so first we'll start out with what type of plasma is being used. And previously, we talked a lot about fusion. And when we discussed plasmas, it was very hot, chaotic, sexy, you know, <laughs> and the electrons and the ions are all one big ball with relative but equal temperature and all equally hot. And this is not the case for plasma medicine. So uh, typically with medical devices, you don't want things to be as hot as the sun. So the first aspect of plasma and plasma medicine is that it's cold. And what we mean by cold is that, okay, to generate a plasma, you still have to bring in uh, quite a bit of energy uh, into the gas to be able to ionize it. So to remove the electrons from their host atoms. Um, but it's in cold, we mean it's in non-equilibrium. So the electrons can be quite hot, whereas the main elements of the gas, and this is normally oxygen or nitrogen for plasmas and plasma medicine, these are much colder and almost room temperature. So this is safe for the skin because the oxygen and the nitrogen are what's going to be mainly interacting with um, with biological targets, which we'll see later when we talk about how um, ions actually interact with, you know, cells. So the first aspect is that it's cold, well, relatively cold. The electrons can still be hot, but yeah, colder than the sun. <laughs> and atmospheric is the second adjective that's used for plasmas and plasma medicine. And what we mean by that is that it can be generated in a normal atmosphere, so not in a vacuum. And so in fusion, we have to generate the plasmas in a, in a controlled vacuum environment. And this is not the case for plasmas in plasma medicine because, okay, it's not feasible to stick a patient into a vacuum and it's not feasible to have hospitals have these massive vacuum chambers. So we need to be able to have devices that can just be, you know, opened up and used in the middle of a room. So these two aspects combine to create cold atmospheric plasmas. And this, of course, does not simplify anything. <laughs> so the plasmas themselves are going to be very complex and they're going to have very complex interactions with biological um, organisms. So this complexity arises from 
the fact that we use oxygen and nitrogen and these react strangely with biological systems you know in, in the generation of the plasma you could also i mean you will have electrons of course floating around and this complicates things um, you could even have ultraviolet photons um, in the generation process and whatever mix of other random particles since you're doing it in the open air um, that could play a role in the complex effects on living tissues um, so yeah this is normally what is being affected is living tissues or biological targets so there's kind of four steps that i want to walk through to talk about how this plasma can affect biological targets and the first one is that the pla the ions within the plasma they're the ones doing the heavy lifting so we have to put our we got to take off the physics hat for a second and put on a chemistry hat and you know if there's any chemist or medicine students out there that i will probably butcher this explanation but um yeah so the body naturally produces these molecules or ions that chemists call free radicals and this is typically a molecule molecule uh, consisting of oxygen or nitrogen and what's you know the main component of this molecule is that it's has one unpaired uh, valence electron so uh, there's one electron not missing but it's free to accept uh, a donor electron let's say and since they're missing this electron in their last orbital shell the, the valence orbital um, these molecules will steal electrons from cell membranes and of course when you're stealing things from a cell membrane this can result in cell damage uh, so how i understand this is that eventually this process um, you these free radicals uh, they can steal from the cell membrane but over time it will either this process will terminate so the naturally will the body will naturally respond using what's called antioxidants and will stop the generation of free radicals or the resulting cell membrane and cell itself sometimes even the tissue is fully damaged um, and has to be later repaired and free radicals can be produced naturally by the mitochondria or they can be externally produced you know through cigarette smoke and pesticides and other things so the body naturally creates these and they can also be externally introduced now we can also generate what's kind of like a pseudo free radical which is the plasma <laughs> so if we use oxygen which these um these free radicals that are naturally produced are normally uh, oxygen-based. Um, we can actually induce damage on cell membranes if we use an oxygen-based plasma. And you may be thinking, okay, this is kind of counterintuitive. You know, we don't want uh, some medical device that's actually damaging cell membranes. But if you think about it, okay, what if there's some cancer or some bacteria or a, a wart? Um, these are, you know, things that are not good for the body and they have cell membranes. So what if we could damage those? And that's kind of the point the, of, you know, using oxygen and nitrogen in the plasma is that you can induce kind of damage to uh, the cell membrane of some of these like bacteria or cancer or warts. So we could attack that with the plasma. And so these ions, because they're the free radicals, uh, pseudo free radicals, let's say, 
their primary target is on the cell membrane. So they want to go and steal electrons from the cell membrane. And, you know, because biochemistry is so complicated and, and we've had such this crazy optimization of, of our bodies through evolution, um, the plasma can initiate or catalyze um, this process of stealing electrons. However, it can also catalyze a response. So when the cell starts losing electrons or the cell membrane, the cell will normally make a call or, or you know, ask a friend, <laughs> a local cell, uh, to help you know, repair. And so the plasma itself can indirectly affect neighboring cells because of the way that these other cells interact and talk with each other. So, you know, the plasma can be indirectly activating signaling pathways, so secondary messenger systems to, you know, amplify and transport this plasma effect. And um, you can use then this plasma to form things that can, you know, damage DNA, which uh, in mammal cells, if you damage your DNA, this is normally easily repaired. Whereas in bacteria, it's not so repaired easily. So, um, you know, due to this complex system that is our body, um, the plasma can induce not only just these direct effects on cell membranes, but secondary and tertiary uh, effects. Um, and that will further complicate things, but um, that's also nice if you can, you know, secondary effects. And the fourth aspect of this, how, how does the plasma affect is, it's what I call selectivity. Um, so, you know, if we, for example, if we take a small plasma beam, <laughs> um, you know, if we make it really fine tuned, then we can selectively choose um, like what the plasma is hitting itself. Um, but, you know, there's only so small you can get. Um, and for example, we could use this to our advantage with uh, bacteria, which is much smaller than mammal cells. So just using a fine-tuned plasma beam can then not affect the mammal cells. Um, and you know, additionally, depending on what type of plasma you create, you know, you could interact with a cancer cell because cancer cells can react differently to a plasma than normal cells or bacteria. So what could be fine for the normal cell could be very damaging to the cancer cell. Um, and cancer and bacteria have what's you know known as exposed DNA in comparison to mammal cells, so it could be easier to get to with the plasma. So you know the selectivity and this complex um, intercellular biochemistry, and the fact that the plasma is affecting the cell membranes through these ions, which act as free radical, these all go into play with affecting these, um, you know, tissues and skin and biological targets. Um, but then the next question is, we want to know, okay, but how deep can this plasma penetrate? Um, and this is kind of difficult to measure. So it's hard to track um, because it's not so, you know, in use and clinical trials are kind of hard to come by. But a few papers that I read have said that, you know, it kind of depends on uh, the plasma itself, of course, but you can get even up to depths of like 1.25 millimeters, which, okay, it doesn't sound so much, but when you're talking about the skin and, you know, going into the skin, this can be pretty deep. Um, but generally, I saw it's an average of like 0 0.5 millimeter um, into the skin. So, 
uh, it's still pretty deep, I would say, but it's all relative. Um, so let's say you do get a plasma that goes 1.25 millimeter into your skin. I mean, is it that bad? Well, it kind of depends on the dose, right? So this is also quite hard to make a benchmark or, or give a, um, you know, a static response because, you know, over time we could actually come up with a metric of what is a dose of plasma. And since it's not a radioactive material, it's oxygen, um, you know, you cannot use your Geiger counter to <laughs> figure out what type of radiation dose because there is no radiation. So typically what I've seen is that you measure basically how many joules, which is um, a joule is like a unit of work. So it's like the amount of, you know, kinetic energy something could have. So for example, one joule is the amount of, you know, energy or food energy that's in a sugar crystal. Um, it's also one joule is typically the amount of, you know, kinetic energy that's in a tennis ball that's moving at, you know, pretty normal speed if you're on the tennis court. So we can measure or we can say that, you know, how many joules per centimeter squared so how many joules in some area um, and you know we can divide basically into four dose regions so a low dose would be less than one joule per centimeter squared and it's seen that okay with this kind of energy dosages you can have inactivation or sterilization of bacteria and so normal cells survive with this low dosage but then if you get to this intermediate stage of two to six joules per centimeter squared i mean you can have i mean it's dna is damaged but it's repairable um so this is something like you could use in cancer treatment so the normal cells are damaged but they can be repaired naturally um, and cancer could even be treated like this um, then you can get to higher ranges so that was two to six joules per centimeter squared and at higher you know greater than seven joules Per centimeter squared you could have you know normal cell death so cells are dying um, that's not good um, and then a very high dosage so greater than 10 joules per centimeter squared you could have what's called cell necrosis so what happens with frostbite for example um, so these are the different dosages and normally you would be operating from you know one joule to six joules uh, so you have a bit of wiggle room uh, when it comes to this so I wouldn't expect any harmful danger, and I'm sure that the people who do apply and use these tools know what they're doing, so I wouldn't be too worried about it. And um, and yeah, it's good that it. I hope that in the future there becomes a more standard approach. But this was just one paper that I saw that had this kind of um, uh, this benchmark or different dose levels. But it could change in the future. But um, if you do go, maybe you can ask, okay, how many joules per centimeter squared of a, of a dosage am I getting? And uh, just hope that it's less than seven, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the last question is, yeah, what kind of devices exist today? So how are we actually generating the plasmas that are used in this plasma medicine? Um, and how are we actually generating the plasmas to, that are you know, being applied to tissues and skin and interacting with biological organisms? And there's two main devices. Um, one is called the plasma jet. So um, this looks like a pencil, really. 
um, I recommend you Google this. I will put a link, I think, in the description of it's called the Pizio brush from a, comp a German company called Relion. And you can actually order this like you could buy one if you wanted to a little pencil, basically. Um, and the, the thing how it works is that some compressed air is basically pushed past a voltage discharge. So it's kind of like it's being pushed past, pushed past a like kind of like a battery that's removing all of its voltage at once. And due to this, this air is then excited and the electrons are stripped from the ions and it's converted into this plasma state, which then, you know, you further compress the air, which is now plasma, and you push it out the end of a kind of pencil tip and you get this very fine jet-like stream of plasma. And so this could be used, right, for wart or just, um, you know, on your skin or in the dental office. Um, so it's yeah almost like a stream of compressed air that's just uh flowing out of what looks like a pencil it's amazing i, I will put a link to it you should check this out um and the second different device that's used mainly today is what's called a it's a, it's a mouthful uh, floating electro dielectric barrier discharge or dpb for in crux um and this was actually the first you know plasma medicine device created in the 1990s in, in the United States. And this is the first device that really people recognized, oh, this could have a use case to it. Um, and kind of the field of plasma medicine grew around since the 1990s from this first device. And I mean, the idea is that you have basically two plate electrodes, which are covered by something like glass. And then between the electrodes, you apply um, high, you know, uh, AC or sinusoidal voltages in the kilohertz frequency range. So really, really fast um, or really high, high frequency um, uh, voltages. And then a plasma is generated, generated within um, this glass. And it's kind of, it looks almost like an eraser. So the other end of the pencil and you can kind of hover it and, and pinpoint locations where you want to apply this plasma. So both of these are used in our common plasma devices today and what you would probably see in your dermatologist office um, or dentist office is either this plasma jet or this dielectric barrier discharge. Um, and yeah, so these are what's generated um, and what are used in to to induce effects on biological targets, right? So I hope at this point we have a nice basis that we can kind of further discuss in the next episodes, um, Plasma Medicine Today. So in the next episodes, in no particular order at the moment, but we will try to discuss um, how these devices are used in cancer treatment or dentistry or dermatology. And if anybody else knows any other places that these are used in plasma medicine, then feel free to let me know. And yeah, and if you have any questions, like you feel like something was not clear, then also let me know and we can go over it next episode. But I hope that in the next week, uh, we'll get a new episode out with Julia, who will be joining, which I'm very excited about. And yeah, it's a very fascinating topic. Um, nice to be able to put on the chemistry hat and 
the biologist hat and it's seems like a really fascinating new age thing so hopefully we get to talk about some some current applications in it in the dermatology and dentistry and cancer treatment regions but until then um yeah stay stay excited about learning <laughs> and i hope to talk with everybody soon